Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? Uh, I already did Kilgore. I did uh, Dennis Hopper. Like, I feel like I wait. I'm just gonna. I could do Kurtz, but I feel like I should wait until next episode to do. Kurtz. Yeah, you gotta do Kurtz in the next episode. You can't do Kurtz. You could do uh, what's his name, the the chef. I didn't. I already try. Did I try and do him? And uh, one from the heart or something? I, yeah, I don't know. Freddie Forrest. Uh. It should be Freddie though. This is like his chunk. We'll just try again. Okay. All right. He says man a lot. <laughs> I feel like. All right. So does Dennis Hopper. So you have to do it a little bit. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they sound a lot alike. But, like, I feel like Dennis Hopper rants and raves a little more. He's, I'll make it, I'll make it more cook, uh, chef. I'll make it more chef-like. I'll try. Um, <clears throat> okay. Hey, this is, no, that, that does sound too much like uh, Dennis Hopper now that I think about it. <laughs> Maybe this is just one I do uh, on my own. Oh, oh, Martin Sheen. Perfect. Perfect. I know how to do the Martin Sheen one. Ready? <clears throat> this is the Uncle Francis's fine cellar. The cut by cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast. Eh, no, it doesn't sound like him at all. A little lighter, a little lighter. It's hard to get that I mean? voice. Higher. He's got a very distinct accent that I think, but whatever. That was terrible. Let me just read it normal. <laughs> okay. Right. This is Uncle Francis's wine cellar, the cut by cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast, and this is a Cage Club Network production. Buonasera. Have a seat. Have a glass. And welcome to Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez. Where's Michael? Even though I just heard him. <laughs> We're not starting the podcast without Michael. Oh, man. Sorry. I, uh, I was digging through my old Playboys. Uh, just, <laughs> I needed an extra minute there. But I'm here. Hold on, Brian. Hold on, Brian. Check this out real quick. Hold on. Very nice. Somehow an old Playboy actually survived. 2004. <laughs> Oh, so like you bought that one? This one I bought off the shelf recreationally. Well, yeah, I guess so because it's got Charisma Carpenter in it. But because I own, I own a number of old Playboys that I've gotten on eBay, but those are just oh, like like I have like my birthday uh, edition. I bought my wife's birthday. They're great like conversation pieces Mm. on the coffee table. Yeah, I love the comics in them too. Like not even joking, but there's like so many great just one panel comics that are really smart so i have one with jerry seinfeld on the cover like <laughs> oh what's the deal with that come on playboy what's the deal with the girls from the pack 10 <laughs> uh, but today we are talking apocalypse now redux our part two not redux part two it's not a sequel Oof. uh we talked about the first hour last time mm-hmm. But today, it's mostly the second hour. We'll, we'll bring you up to speed exactly where we left off and where we're picking up. And of course, just a reminder, Apocalypse Now is from 1979, but we are talking the Redux cut from 2001. And because we are still talking the Redux cut, it is a director's cut, and I will continue to drink this Francis Coppola director's cut, Cabernet Sauvignon. Nice. I didn't drink it all last time, despite what some of you might think. 
pour myself a nice glass. It's nice and aerated. Very so good. I got to buy more of these director's cuts. They're a little bit more expensive, but I've seen them in, in the wine shop. So as we do more alternate cuts, I'll save the director's cut edition for those. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. That just reminded me. I saw like, uh, what, what, oh, man, we got so many more to go. I'm so excited. Like <laughs> I, I was going to go off for a minute, but why digress? We've got so much other stuff to talk about and we're going to get everywhere eventually. So everywhere, everywhere, and even more places as Francis makes more films and likely more cuts of those films. But I'd like to remind nieces and nephews out there of course to keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer by hitting that subscribe button wherever you're listening google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher while you're there leave us a positive review give us a good rating also follow our social media uncle francis's wine cellar on instagram i am at ohmy rodriguez on twitter mike you are the mikester true almost everywhere s-t-i-r yes Thank you. The, the Mikester. And please check out the archive of this show at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me, which is also the home of the other podcast we host. I feel like we haven't promoted them in a while, so yeah. I'll go first. High School Slumber Party, another show I host. Mike, you're on that a bunch. Yes. Where I talk teen films. We kind of had, I don't want to say hiatus, but the pace was a little bit slower, but we're back rocking and rolling, Sweet. so check that out. Uh, Mike, I haven't loaned you on Slumber Party in a while because we've been busy with Uncle Francis, but I'm gonna need to I'm gonna need to call you in. Oh, dude, no you know you know the you know it's coming up, right? It's I mean it's the season is upon us. The season of the Corys is Ooh. is on the horizon. I can feel it. I can feel it. I just saw. I was watching old episodes of Angry Video Game Nerd, and he was doing Sega CD, and up popped the Corey Haim Sega CD game. So we're gonna have to watch. Oh. Oh that God. on youtube and talk about it but there's a whole bunch of extra special stuff to get to already and i'm very excited but yes i'm over there high school slumber party while it's still being produced i guess i should talk about third times a charm i don't know if i've ever mentioned that on this show before by name we, we've mentioned it because of uh talking about godfather 3 and how oh, okay, the show okay. started but you don't plug it a lot on this show i don't even think I was on your last episode, and I don't even think you shared it on social media. No, I don't. So. I don't think. <laughs> I mean, the show. It, the show goes on always. Like, I don't know who's listening, but I just do it for myself, I guess, at this point. But uh, it's been a fun year so far. Brian is my unofficial co-host there, and you're right. We do mention that because we covered Godfather Part Three and the Coda. You know, so uh, go check that out, and that's fun, and that's still happening. Yeah. We do mention Monsters That Made Us quite a bunch here, your your other show, just because Dan Colon's been on, and I don't know, it. Boris Karloff comes up from time to time. He came up last week. Yeah. And the titular Cage Club, Keanu Club, all the great programs you host on cageclub.me. Thank you. But of course, it is not about Cage. It is about the uncle. That's right. Francis Ford Coppola. That's how we got here, right? That's how we got to Uncle Francis. We got there through the nephews and, and, and all around the bow. But yeah, it's, it's like serendipity that we would get here. And I know we are still up the river. We're still in the jungle, right? We, we're midway through our journey through the redux. Yeah, yeah. We're headed to Cambodia, man. We're almost to the border. But we cannot forget what grounds us. We cannot forget what keeps us sane, at least for now. And that is to do our regular segments. So oh boy. the gate is up. <laughs> Come, walk this way. Take a look. 
They put the picture's name on everything. Merchandising, merchandising, where the real money from the movie is made. Mike's merchandise of the episode. Mike, what do you got for me this oh, week? Oh, boy. Okay, so, like, I feel like I went a little out of order. Uh, for the documentary for, for Hearts of Darkness, I remember we did the trip to Kim, to the trip up the river in Vietnam. You could take a boat ride in Vietnam, and it's a lovely vacation. The second one was the Mangoes. Uh, like, I feel like maybe that should have been this episode because we're going to be talking about the mangoes this episode. And I feel like <laughs> I should have done this one last episode, but I'm going to send you it right now in the good old messenger chat. Catch surf. Oh, surfboards. Nice. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So it looks like you could also get them customized. Like you could have whatever graphics you want put on these. Uh, you could do it just like Kilgore's board if you want it to be. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Honestly, I don't surf. I guess I'm like Charlie, but I would love, I would love a surfboard from this movie. Yeah, there's a really, there's some really great designs. I like. I don't know heads or tails when it comes to surfing either. I wish I did, uh, but I love the look of surfing. I love Point Break. Shout out Keanu Club. Yeah, I just think it's really cool and hypnotizing. I watched a, a video today on uh, some guy surfing the biggest wave in the world, and it looked amazing. So. Yeah, I was like, you know, that surfing has a lot to do with this movie. I'm going to do surfboards tonight. Nice. I love it, Mike. That's a good one. So you kind of stole my thunder with my thing. I actually am not picking from the Academy Store. There Whoa. wasn't really anything relevant today. But this depends on your budget. You could e- either purchase one or the whole lot. Okay. Yes. See, this is perfect, Brian, because... You can't get a subscription anymore. Why don't you explain what this is? This is so much more appropriate for today's theme of this episode. Well, I I sent you two lots of things. One was just an individual magazine, Playboy May 1969, Sally Sheffield. So this is an actual Playboy of the era, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. I've purchased some of these on eBay. And yes, they do have naked ladies in them, but they're more for fun curiosity. Ooh. The articles are interesting. <laughs> this is a very uh, interesting interview with Bill Cosby. <laughs> oh, boy. But you see, like you get people like this in there, and you, you can pull quotes, and you're like, oh, did they actually say that? That's not good. Yeah, so this one has, I didn't notice this one. Fantastic. I sent it Candid conversation with the kinetic comedian, actor, singer, entrepreneur, Bill Cosby. Woo! Let's let's hope there's nothing incriminating there. But one of the, my favorite things from these old Playboys are the ads. I've actually bought some individually. I've bought some from the magazine and, yeah. and cut them out because the ads are just like super cool and super macho and it's really funny. But I also sent you. Oh, so that's only fifteen ninety five. You can get these old Playboys in mint condition. Whoa! Look at this near mint condition. So this lot is a great deal. But yes, the whole lot. Uh, the, I believe Apocalypse Now takes place in 1970, but I figured they probably wouldn't have 1970 Playboys, mm-hmm. you know, hard to send from America. I, I was thinking they might have 1969 Playboys, and you can get a full lot of 12 Playboy magazines whole year. on eBay with the centerfolds for wow. $75. Buy it now. That is a And steal. I'm telling you... If you're out there and be like, porn is gross. Yes, it's technically pornography, but this is so much more wow. than that. Playboy, Brian. I mean, you and I weren't, weren't around in this time, but, but Playboy 
was like a status symbol. Like it was okay for men to have on their coffee table. They had articles. Yeah. Some of the Hunter S. Thompson obviously wrote for Playboy. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. Um, like, uh, was it also like Stephen King, perhaps, or like I don't know. Like lots of things were serialized in Playboy. Lots of famous books. Maybe it was. Uh, yeah, my mind is sort of going blank. But like maybe Philip K. Dick as well. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was legitimately a great magazine that happened to have. Naked hot ladies in there. Yes. No. <laughs> um, Brian, if you scroll down a little, like there is a lot from 1970, the entire year for 50 bucks, and then 1971 for 49 dollars. Like, let's let's get a I'll get a few of these with you, split them up. I'd like to have a couple lying around and pull out some some covers and ads and frame them, maybe. Yeah, Mike. The, they make great gifts, and I'm not just saying that. Like, if you have a friend who is curious about history, has a sense of humor. You buy them the birthday issue? Like, they've gone over... I'm, I'm not kidding. They've gone over so well as gifts. Because, honestly, nobody is buying a Playboy today. <laughs> and, and, like, just for the sexual right. reasons of it. Like, you you have the internet if you want to do that. They're really time capsules of the era. So, wow. I don't know. I, I thought you'd get a <laughs> kick out of it. Yeah, I'm looking for the one from my birthday now. Very fun. I mean, they have it. I got to bet the whole lot from the year if I want it. But the lot's only 30 bucks. 12 issues, 1979. Wow. I'm telling you, conversation starters. <laughs> Who's on the cover for for August here? I got to know. Fun time, Brian. I approve. <laughs> Very cool. If you are a representative of Playboy magazine and you happen to be listening out there, again, I don't know if they still make no. the physical magazine of Playboy. They don't? I don't I don't even think they do the uh, the other thing, like. I'm taking pictures of the auction so that I can come back to it later. Um, sure, Mike. Sure. <laughs> I don't even think that they run any any of it at all. Like, I don't think it exists whatsoever. I think it's done. They they folded. I guess Playboy can't sponsor us, but if Playboy wants to make a comeback and they want us to be contributors, we we'd volunteer. We'd turn this into Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar podcast, brought to you by Playboy. Absolutely, live from the Playboy Mansion, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, broadcasting from the grotto, perhaps. <laughs> we are looking for a cannoli sponsor. We are looking for a pizza sponsor. We are looking for a menswear sponsor. Watches trips Watches. to the White Lotus in Sicily. <laughs> And I guess today we'll officially announce that we are looking for an elevated, classy pornography sponsor. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an oxymoron, perhaps, but I don't know. A class, like a... <laughs> What's the term for that? A, a gentleman's magazine. Think, you know, we're looking yeah, for a, yeah. I, I, a gentleman's magazine to sponsor. Late us. night, late night showtime, not like uh, pay-per-view Skinamax, maybe call that Skinamax, but not you know online like Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you know, more power to you for that. But this is a, somewhat a family show. I think this is a PG thirteen show. I don't know if it's an <laughs> R show. I've said the F word three times already. There's no way it's like. <laughs> All right, it's a rated R show then, but it's not an NC seventeen show. It's not a rated. It's not R a, uh, show. Yeah, it's not unrated. Yes. <laughs> maybe we'll have another cut of this episode. Ooh. What if we started releasing the uncut versions or, oh, or the no. redox cuts of our episodes? No one would listen to that. No, there, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason that we edit. You know, like no one needs that. 
That's that's preposterous. Mike, you talked about starting a Patreon. What if the Patreon was just the Redux cuts of all our? Well, episodes? that's a different story. That's different because you have to <laughs> you have to pay to hear it. Fine, like then, right? I don't care how dumb I sound, but like, I want the general audience to seem that like have the illusion that I at least appear to know what I'm talking about. If you're listening to the regular feed right now on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening. Know that we cut out this entire French sequence. (laughs) You would have loved it. It just did not make sense in the episode. That's a good Uh, one. Moving on. Mike Capella. Where in the world is the Godfather streaming? Give it to me, Brian. Unofficially everywhere and nowhere. Huh. Right? You could VOD it anywhere, but it's the same as last time. Um, you could watch it on your cable system and sort of rent it there, if, if applicable, on IFC. But I also looked that it's playing on BBC America as well. Whoa. It's not a British film. I don't know. Okay. But right now it's in, it's in a cable run. We'll see where it goes next month. All right. But it's not... It's not streaming for free anywhere All right. officially. All right. I guess that's how I guess that's how people doubt about the Godfather across the pond. Uh, that's how Jason watches it. He has to watch. They've it never they've BBC. never heard of the Godfather in England. Well, no. yeah. It's, it's, well, a, as soon it's as, a help. As soon as it came on BBC, they did. That's that's my point. And I think Monty Python <laughs> might have done a sketch about that. No. <laughs> so I'm just going to spoiler alert this. No Megalopolis news. Wah, no news wah. is good news. We hope. Well, I guess yeah. Fingers but crossed. you can still play. You can still do the news tagger because we got some other things oh, to talk okay. about. Okay, yeah. I mean, this is for news in general. This isn't just for necessarily Megalopolis. But uh, let's let me find the tape. Hold on a second. Gotta find. Gotta find the tape. <laughs> okay, here we go. Put it in the cart in the thing. Coppola news. Francis Ford Coppola news again. Quiet news week. Two things that I thought were of interest, though, uh, and I won't get into this one. I think we'll get into it another day when we cover this film. But Collider has a really interesting and fun article about Francis Ford Coppola by the writer named Thomas Butt. It's about, well, let, let me see if you can guess what film it's about. This is the headline. This disastrous Francis Ford Coppola production is something straight out of The Godfather. What? This disastrous Coppola production is something straight out of The Godfather. No, I cannot guess what movie that is. Jack? The film is The Cotton Club, which I have never seen. But apparently that is Hmm. one of his crazy, crazy, crazy production stories. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't read the whole article. I didn't want to spoil it for when we cover it. But I can't wait till we cover this one. because Two cuts of that. Seems chaotic. Robert Evans is very involved. So Yeah, so wait. Nick Cage is in there. Two cuts. We have the original and then Encore. So <laughs> I love it. Looking forward to that. Love it. Uh, another quick article. This is just random but related. You mentioned your show Third Time's a Charm, Mike. I just got back from the theater, well, yesterday, uh, watching a movie. Well, I wanted to watch it. And my wife did as well. But for your show, mm-hmm. that would be Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And... How strange was it that Francis Ford Coppola's name came up at, like, the press junket and the press circuit? Did you hear about this? No. Why? It was very brief. It was James Gunn teasing Chris Pratt. I know he's not the most popular person to everybody, but uh, basically, Chris Pratt, for another movie, I believe, was staying at James Gunn's place in Atlanta, and apparently James Gunn got a call, and it was Uncle Francis, and Uncle Francis is like, hey, James... 
I know you got a place in Atlanta. We're shooting Megalopolis. And I was wondering no way. if I could stay there. And he had to tell Francis no because Chris Pratt was already staying there. Wow. So he was giving Chris Pratt shit about having to tell the great Francis Ford Coppola that he couldn't use his house. That's hilarious. Oh, man. I like that. That's a good one. Pretty fun. Worlds collide. Worlds collide. So I'm just verifying something here before I talk about it. But yes, it would appear. I think this is pretty cool and very uh, connected. But I have a bit of Coppola news, I suppose. Or, or should I say Zoetrope news? Are you ready? Ooh. Ooh, yes. So we're recording this on May 15th. But yesterday, May 14th, there was a double birthday. Oh, yes, yes, yes. In the family, George Lucas and Sofia Coppola celebrated their birthdays together. They share a birthday. I learned that yesterday. That's I so it on cool. our, our social media. Yeah, I was like, what? When I saw both of them? That's crazy. May, what a big month. Yeah, for, yeah. For Lucas. Uh-huh. Uh, May the 4th, mm-hmm. his birthday, and Star Wars originally came out in May. Yeah, yeah. He's he's up there, too. He's 79, I think, it said. But, like, I think that's so fun that, like, you know, your daughter's bored on your best friend's birthday or whatever. Or, like, you share a birthday with your best friend's daughter and this and that. And it's just a big, you know, it's all zoetrope, baby. All zoetrope. I love it. But, Mike... Let's skip the formalities. Mm-hmm. You know what we did? You know what we made a mistake doing at the beginning of this episode? Oh, uh, what? What did we fuck up? We got off the boat. We oh, get back on this shit, boat. shit, man. Never get off the <laughs> boat, man. Never get off the boat. And we need to continue talking Apocalypse Now Redux. Last time I, I mentioned I would do this, and I feel compelled to do this because I could imagine there's some confusion out there with all the cuts, all the releases of Apocalypse Now. There are officially three cuts of apocalypse now so i'm going to go through that and i'm going to go through the dvd releases quickly three cuts of apocalypse now but four unofficial cuts Mm. so of course we have the theatrical version right we have this one and oh sorry theatrical comes out in 79 that's the version that a lot of people know 2001 we get the redux yeah that's what we're covering today and then final cut which is shorter than the Redux, mm-hmm. longer than the theatrical version. Right. It kind of mixes both elements. That comes out in 2019, and as we noted last time, that is like the Godfather Coda. That is what Francis considers the definitive version. Yep. All other versions have been wiped. I am still you know, borrowing the stream from you, Mike, to watch the Redux. So if you want to rent Apocalypse Now right now, I think you can find the theatrical cut in some places. But Final Cut is likely the one you're going to see on TV. Final Cut is the one that you're going to stream on Amazon or, or wherever. So right now, that's the preeminent cut, if you will. But Mike. Mm-hmm. Yes, Brian. Were you aware that there is a bootleg cut called the Assembly version out there? Oh, no. Are you kidding me? So like this is with the, uh, the time code, and it's probably on VHS and not color timed. Like one of those copies? I'll say, I'll watch it. Quality never mattered to me. I wanted to make a shirt in college that says, as long as I can watch it, which meant (laughs) DVD, tape, cave painting, whatever, as long as I can see some version of it. I love it. Well, there is a five hour work out there. Dude, five fucking hours. We have to cover it one day. Um, You know what that is, though, bro? That's like every shot of helicopters, every shot. 
that they did was probably combined. Well, again, I don't want to share too much now because I don't want it to be wiped from the internet. Ooh. But there is actually somebody who, A, wrote down all the scenes that are different. And I read through someone. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Uh-uh. And B, download it to the internet so we could just download the files. They're zip files. Like, how do we do that? I don't know how to. I'm too old to know. I'll send you the link. I'll get the link and we'll just try to download it. I don't think it's a virus. I, I read <laughs> not reviews, but uh, comments. If we, if anybody out there is savvy enough to just, you know, have this appear in my inbox one day, watchable, please help me out. There's some of it on YouTube, actually. There's a, there's approximately ha- uh, like a third of this cut on YouTube. Okay. Is the guy who released it named like, <laughs> it's like, so <laughs> it's like Frankie cage. It's like a <laughs> Francis Coppola pseudonym. <laughs> I don't know, but one day we have to cover it. We'll probably need to do it after we've watched all versions because this is expert mm. level Coppola. In this, no, right? th- yeah. This is like, um, you know, when we've, when we've ourselves fallen into madness because of the show, <laughs> all the different cuts and it's become like an obsession again. So I also want to run through the DVD versions. Yes. Because it's an interesting little look into how this film has evolved. It comes out in 79 officially. 81 is the first VHS, but if you were buying VHS in 1981, Whoa. you know how expensive they were and uh, how expensive it probably is now. Man, who'd want to watch it too? Letter about, like all cropped and everything, but I would love to have a copy of it for fun. It's beautiful because it's just like the poster with the sun and then on, literally on the front like vertically it says zoetrope studios like oh, in huge writing so cool 91 you get the first laser disc edition wow a laser disc version dude i've been in record stores yeah laser discs are popping up more and more yeah and i've been so tempted to buy them and i'm like my wife will yeah dude it's just what, if where? i buy laser discs because you're never gonna <laughs> watch I don't have it. a player and yeah and they're so rare the ones that work i used to work at like a this this mail order record place and like i think my boss would come back from the um, like flea markets with boxes of laser discs because we had like two dudes who would just buy any laser disc for their collection. <laughs> I've seen them all. It's crazy. Ninety two, we get another VHS. Oh. Um, no differences really here. Ninety. It's not widescreened um, because ninety two. That's when I feel like VHS were starting to come out letterboxed at times. But it's possible. But um, this website doesn't okay. say. Okay. This website. This website is very bare bones when it comes to. It's just basically telling you what came out and stuff. I'll take I'll take a sufficient no as an answer. Ninety seven for whatever reason they re release on Laserdisc. On Laserdisc, that's yeah. really weird. On in ninety seven. Here we go, Mike. Here we go. Ninety eight is the first time it's on widescreen in VHS. Okay. Okay. Ninety nine is the first DVD. Okay. It comes out on widescreen. It looks like minimal special features. Two thousand one is when Redux drops. Now, that's on VHS. <laughs> I can't imagine Redux on VHS. How many VHS? That's got to be two tapes. Probably, right? It's hard for me to see here. But we have a DVD and a VHS, and it's just Redux. Okay, okay. And we don't get a release till 2006 of other stuff, right? That's right. when the complete dossier drops. Yeah, that's what I first see Redux. Yep. Yeah, you're getting Redux, the regular version a bunch of special features. That's the one that looks like the dossier. It looks like the envelope. Mm-hmm. It's super yep, cool. Yep. There's a bonus disc as well. So that's a three-disc set. There's also a special edition back then. 
of this dossier that doesn't look like that, but it has like the, the face of Kurtz, and like that one is pretty cool as well. Oh, wow, that's cool. 2010, they release another edition of Redux just solo for whatever reason. Okay. And then we get a two disc version of Redux, which huh. has Redux and the theatrical and not as much bonus content. <laughs> okay. Wow. They really keep going back to this well. I can't wait till Blu ray hits. <laughs> this is why this is hilarious. Then there's something called the Apocalypse Now full disclosure version that what? comes out in 2010 that has Redux, the regular cut, and some bonus materials that is not on. <laughs> That's why I, it, like, <laughs> if we're doing yeah. this for 10 years, Mike, we got to uh-huh. dive into every DVD. There's uh-huh. different special features apparently on this disclosure edition. Does it does it come in like a commemorative surfboard? No, it's just I wish. It's just like a different cover. A cool right. blue and green cover. Then you have an exclusive Best Buy Steelbook, which looks awesome, that All comes right. out in 2013. All and right. then the trend is we're seeing both. Everyone is almost released with Apocalypse Now and Apocalypse Now Redux together. Yes. I'm not sure if the, the Steelbook is. I, I, that The Steelbook might just be the theatrical cut. And then the last release, of course, is 2019, which is the final cut, which has that really cool cover of yeah. Willard c- coming out of the water. And then it has a, like the... the reflection is kurtz like and that one's in 4k like you can get yeah. that one and everything so. that's the one i just picked up yeah i got that on sale really good deal now i got them all on blu-ray i watch it on blu-ray i don't know if my tv's big enough for the 4k experience to really pull off but <laughs> well i only share that because like for the francis fans out there who who might have a different dvd or might have a different vhs or, yeah. or blu-ray here uh, and i'm sorry the, the steel book is blu-ray as well but Please watch all your discs and look for the special features. We all probably have different special features on ours, well, and yeah. one day we'll get to it. But it's just this movie has been deep dive at nauseum, and I feel like it's not even enough. If that makes sense. Uh yeah, yeah. We dive in deep, and st- it's like the Mariana Trench. It just keeps getting deeper. Also, those are just the American releases, correct? Like I'd love, yeah, to see yeah, yeah. If there's any crazy special features overseas and across the pond, and you know, Land of the Rising Sun everywhere where, where, where DVDs are crazy. Because I know I used to get, I used to order some movies from Japan through like the Play Asia website and stuff because they would come out sooner. They'd have different special features or something, something or other. Uh, play them in my region free player. And same, same with like UK releases, you know. So I always wonder, you know, what's out on those. Yeah, there's a lot of German exclusive releases. I'm curious about those as well. Schuller. <laughs> Deep cut there. Uh- <laughs> all right the nitty-gritty we're on the boat let's do it yes we left off with the end of the kilgore scene right they steal steal the surfboard get on the boat and leave kilgore and the redux here wanted to bring it up for our, us today starts off and this is not in anything at least it's not a theatrical cut nope it's it's kilgore <laughs> a recording of kilgore the helicopter searching for the surfboard. Yes. And if I remember correctly, I don't know if this is from special features or just something I watched or something I read. Francis had said that the surfboard does appear in the theatrical cut, but only briefly, and that he essentially added all this other stuff to give context to why there was a surfboard there. Huh. And this is one of the reasons, right? Like, I think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious that Kilgore is looking for this surfboard. Yeah. That uh, Lance, like, doesn't care, and they're all getting a kick out of it. Yeah, so what do you think of this added element? Yeah, this is this is an obvious 
added element to me. You know, I, it kind of sticks out a little too. I hope it's not in the final cut or whatever it is because it, there's something I don't like about it. Like, what I do like about it is the is it kind of emphasizes the ridiculousness of not just Kilgore, but like he doesn't even care if the enemy hears him. He just wants his surfboard. And the fact that he took time to record this and he's probably got multiple choppers out playing it all over the place. Like, I think it is kind of funny, but it feels out of place in the sense that, you know, Martin Sheen, like Captain Willard is also getting such a kick out of this. And it's like the only time in the movie where he's laughing and he's smiling and he's getting along with the rest of the boat really well. And then they're busting on each other and they get the camaraderie and even volunteers to go with chef uh, out into the jungle and everything. But like, it just feels a little off, but like, and it's not to say like, I don't like it either. Like the, the other side of it is you finally do get to see Willard, kind of relaxing and not taking everything so seriously and trying to bond with these dudes and pulling a prank and, you know, kind of taking it way too far for too long and all this kind of thing. But like, I don't know. I think it also just emphasizes that like they're off their game out there. Like, you know, there's a great line later that he reads by Kurtz where it says, give me less men that can fight better or something like that. Right. Where it's like, there's just too many of us. Uh, We're trying to make it too much like back home. We're too distracted. We're just too distracted. And I think this is just another thing where they're like, man, this is boring. We got to kill some time. Let's steal this surfboard, whatever. It'll make it feel more like home. So I I see the purpose of it. But personally, like, I think this might be my least favorite addition because it's just like too silly. Fair enough. I think I justified it because in this cut specifically, I see Willard as really looking down on Kilgore. And I don't really know if I get that from the other cuts. I see Willard, he sees Kilgore, and he sees this man who has such bravado, has such machismo and gusto, but he essentially hides behind these machines, these helicopters, right? When he can't win a battle, he calls in a napalm strike, and he's proud of it. Mm -hmm. Willard and, and Kurtz, they get in the shit. Things get hairy for them. Kilgore thinks... He's a war god, thinks he loves this war. But deep down, he's just sort of this loser surfer dude <laughs> who's, you know, using the might of the United States military industrial complex, essentially, to yeah. seem bigger than everyone, be bigger than everyone. And at the end of the day, like I said, he's sort of a dork looking for his surfboard, looking for acceptance from this random sailor, Lance, essentially. Mm-hmm who happens to be a surfer back home. So I, I get where you're coming from completely. Could I do without it? Absolutely. But I think for me, the justification is that. Like, it's Willard not taking this man seriously, not taking Kilgore seriously, because to him, he's not a serious fighter. It, but exactly what you're saying. I love that quote about the distraction. I love that quote, like, less men, more determined men. Like, maybe Kilgore, he thinks he'll make the cut there. Maybe Kilgore doesn't even make the cut when it comes to uh, who Kurtz would want in the war, right? That's true. No, I don't. I think Kurtz would look at him like a joke and be like, you know, you're pathetic, you're pitiful. Like, you think you're strong, but you hide behind all this talk and all this. And like you just said, I see that. I, you know, and it's interesting. I just guess that I feel like they proved the point already with Kilgore, you know, and this is sort of like an extra nail on that coffin where they do, because I feel like they prove, they do this 
again or multiple times throughout the movie is something where it's like, you know, uh, people are like hiding behind the comfort of possessions or items or things like that. And that is sort of helping them get through the war. And it's like also what they think they're fighting for. So Kilgore's like, yeah, I'm fighting so that we can go back and surf for freedom or like we're here for, for freedom and surfing. And so you steal his surfboard and that's what represents him. Like he's going to be, you know, emasculated to his men and like seen as impotent. You basically took his dick. Like that's what the surfboard <laughs> is, you know, it's even phallic like it too. So I'm liking it more and more that we're talking about it, but I just feel like we proved this point multiple times in the movie. Like even later with Lance and the puppy, you know, like, dude, what do you, what are you doing with a puppy in the middle of this war? You know, like hand it off to a villager, like don't bring it with you on this journey. Like you're hiding behind the comfort of this, of this thing that reminds you of back home where it's like, you should just be laser focused. And same with like dancing on the river to the rolling stones and all this stuff. Like, I just feel like it's a point made multiple times. I think. I don't mind the point made multiple times, but I will, as we talk it out, I will agree with you that the helicopter search to an extent feels redundant in this one way this movie's episodic when we leave a world if you will when we leave an episode yeah we don't revisit it we don't get callbacks from it i don't think there's any except except the playboy thing we'll mention later but that is also added right once it's gone it's gone you've moved on to the next thing so it is a little weird to have a callback to that Mm. so i'm not necessarily defending it I, I'm take it or leave it. I get a kick out of it. But I also, if it wasn't here, it wouldn't change anything. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I guess I could justify that by saying, like, it sort of helps reestablish the boundaries of this territory and this world. It's like Kilgore can't go past this point, you know? Like, he's only allotted oh. to, like, that section. And it's like, <laughs> you know, Ooh, after like that, that. They, he's got to stop looking for him, you know? And it's just this little reminder of, like... I got to turn back now, but I guess, you know, if you find my surfboard, bring it to me. And it's like, yeah, it's my jurisdiction or something like that. And I feel like, yeah, it, it, he kind of crosses it for a second and is pulled back. Mike, last time we talked about how this, not that you we, you said you didn't want to see it, but I said I could see this as a miniseries instead of a film. It, to me, is a great episode ender to end with them stealing the surfboard and to begin the next episode with this audio as a reminder. And since we're doing that, I think it's a little bit more helpful. But maybe when you're watching the movie straight through, it's not. I don't know. But I do know you like this next scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Looking for mangoes. Yeah. They leave the boat. They leave the boat. So it, it's... Uh, Willard and the chef, and they're looking for mangoes, and chef is telling his story, mm-hmm. how he was born to be a saucier. We talked about it last time. Yeah, we? yeah. But but one thing you catch, too, is, like, you, this, he's telling about how, like, you know, he also got drafted. Like, he got the letter as soon as he was about to go overseas to become, like, an official saucier and trained with, like, world-famous people. It's like, oh, man, now I'm here. And then his whole thing between, like, he went to the Navy and saw how they were cooking, and he was like, screw this. This is disgusting. And he got transferred over here, but he asked he asked for one thing, and he got stuck in another thing. And it's kind of funny how yeah. this guy that gets shuffled around through the and lost in the jurisdiction and, like, I'm not the, and lost in the uh, bureaucracy of it all almost. Like, they almost shifted his papers in the wrong direction when he asked to get put one place, they put him in another. And we talked about this last time, though, like, uh, 
Willard says he's wrapped too tight for Vietnam, maybe wrapped too tight for New Orleans, his hometown as well. But, but he represents a lot of people in Vietnam um, who were about to be drafted by the infantry and join the Navy, thinking it would be easier. And then they send them upriver in these boats. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying John Kerry did this, but that was what they were used to accuse John Kerry in the election, like, oh, he thought he was getting out of it. Swift boating. By joining yeah. the Navy. Yeah, that's yeah. the whole swift boat thing, right? Again, I'm not, I don't agree with that. I'm just saying that that, that existed. Also, when you see that, like, that was not a uh, smart move for the people who tried to do it because they ended up in probably more dangerous situations or worse situations than if they had just stayed where they wanted to be or, you know what I'm saying, where they were staying. Absolutely. Like, you kind of get through it. Like, who's to say that that chef couldn't... Uh, change the way they were boiling the meat right like who's to say if he's or, ju- or just boil the meat right just right man just shut up boil the meat and don't get shot at <laughs> exactly exactly but it, but it's passion too much but forget about getting shot mike we get a oh. bigger a bigger i mean i don't know bigger but a a scarier threat in the jungle here a tiger yeah, this is amazing because i i don't feel like we see the enemy's face like at all right like every time they're getting shot at from the trees like we don't see any of those people especially not their face and here this tiger represents all of them to me represents the entire Viet Cong right like it's like they're all just out there laying in wait ready to pounce at any second just like a group of tigers like a pride of tigers or something like that and that's how I feel about this scene. That's how I've always felt about this scene. I feel like this is such a perfect scene because it like encapsulates so much that this movie is trying to say. Like, not only should you not get off the boat, like they shouldn't be on a boat up this river in the first place. Like they, you know, like they just do not belong. Like the this is not their territory. Like this this jungle belongs to the the lions and the ti- or the tigers and the animals and the people who live there. You know, so it's just. To me, that's how I always kind of thought about this scene. You're absolutely right about that. I was going to touch on that a little bit later. Um, The fact that we rarely, if ever, see the true enemy. We don't see, like, actual battles. We see battles, but we don't see, you know, Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. We hear them a lot, right? We hear them a lot. But it's that unknown threat from the jungle. The jungle feels like it's the one who's after you, and the tiger definitely exemplifies that also you you mentioned it earlier that this is sort of like the way we're breaking it up like the chef chapter the way he break he breaks down after this oh man he's just like i just want to learn to cook you know like it just totally puts his character into perspective like he's a fun loving guy but he's just trying to get done with the tour and <laughs> yeah. get out of there i i, I mean I, I that's why i love this actor Fred, freddie forrest like he is so good in this movie you know it's like one of those things that like he didn't need to be in a lot of films because like he made so many career-defining performances and this like i can't forget about i can never forget don't get off the boat because of the way that like yeah man he he he's just like hundred percent throws up his hands. He's like, fuck this. No way. Screw that. Like, I, you know, I feel like a lot of us have been there where you just can't take it anymore. And, you know, we're just sick of it. And it's just like, screw this, man. This is just too much. And he plays it so right. And so well. So right. So we're going to hit on a, a couple big scenes and moments here. And I yeah. think the next big one is 
this uh, USO show, which oh. first time I watched this movie, I was like so Im- impressed by this. They sort of see it in the distance, and this is where we get that monologue about R and R, like mm-hmm. where he's like Charlie's not having R and R, but the yeah. the U.S. government's putting on this big production. You know, who my favorite person in this scene is who when they land and Willard is like looking to uh, trade some gas for mm-hmm. things or get some gas, whatever he's doing. Um, and there's the dude who's like, sort of like the manager of the place. Mm-hmm. He, he's like another military officer, and he's giving Willard a hard time. Oh and yeah, Willard yeah. like, like grabs him by the fucking lapels. He's like, "Listen, motherfucker! Yeah. <laughs> like, give us some diesel." He's ignoring he's like, Lawrence Fishburne, and he's talking to Freddie. Right, and Freddie Forrester's like, "Hey, man, and get some of that." Like, he's asking for weed. He's selling him weed. Yeah. Yeah, and he's totally ignoring uh, Clean. And Clean's like, yo, man, we need Diesel. And I love how he turns after that. It's just a yeah. sign that, like, force is what rules the jungle out there, for better or worse, right? Yeah. And after that, he's like, hey, whatever you want. You want VIP tickets to the show? Uh-huh. I'm sorry. You could tell it's busy here. You're good, man. Like, he also knows he's a captain and stuff, and he doesn't want to screw right. around there. But it just felt like so real world and so removed from the war like willard brings the war back to him by that aggression yes but you would think that this is a guy in the in the back of a a theater in la or new york dude, you know dude, what I mean? dude, this is this is a rock show yeah you know this is backstage at like Lollapalooza these days well that's showing my age um <laughs> but like burning man or something because of like the spectacle <laughs> okay showing my age again <laughs> uh, but you get my point yeah like this is this is not war at the moment like none of this makes any sense like this also ties a lot into how surreal things are and like that version of surreal is like in the middle of the jungle is this huge stage all these lights like uh, hundreds of guys running around with supplies cigarettes booze porno mags like drugs like whatever you need food you know did i say booze like there's just everything you can imagine going on here and anything everything but actually fighting the war in vietnam is happening it's so crazy and like what is what does all of this like morale boosting do it just like when it's over first of all we'll talk about how it just like goes completely south um but that's (laughs) one thing but the other thing is like when it's over it's like it's over like now you got to go back you know it's almost like insult to injury it's like now you got to go back to war like that we you know you get a tease and now it's like you got to go back so they really make a point of that too how like the enemy the Viet Cong out there like they're not stopping for these things their victory is clearing out an invader from their homeland yeah. essentially right but for the US the i forgot the exact quote but it's like the more they were reminded of home the more they wanted to be home of course willard is like i've been home it's yeah. not great. I, I want to come back here. I mean, and we get a letter later from that we read of Kurtz, where he sends a letter to his son about it's kind of like the same thing, where he's like, "There's there is no home anymore." He's like, "There's only this. There's only the mission, or or whatever." And I feel like Willard is is turning into Kurtz in a way, and it's like it's, if he goes too far, he will become him. But like this is the same line of thinking, you know, where it's like back home isn't what counts like it's what we do here that you know matters and like you gotta be here to do something here and when we get more into kurtz we'll talk about this but he's going the same trajectory that almost everyone they've sent to find kurtz has gone right right like like you just become 
drawn in by the ideology. It sounds right, especially for real military men among all these draftees, people who don't, who don't want to be there, people who are enjoying. This is why we're talking so much Playboy today. The Playboy Bunny is performing. Oh my God. I'm not a film <laughs> nerd in terms of like shot work and lighting. I wish I was better at it. I have always loved how this was shot, how it yeah. looked with all those soldiers and they're just ravenous. And there's these three play- Playboy bunnies and one's dressed as like a cowgirl. I think one's a Native American. Yeah, cowboys and, and Indians. Yeah. And one's just like a soldier, right? They're so into it because they're just so desperate for any connection at home. And they're just dancing. And you know what I'm saying? Like the way it's shot with those lights. Yes. Yes. I I don't know. I always have a reference for this particular sequence, and it's Stanley Kubrick. For some reason, this entire sequence feels like Kubrick shot it to me. Like, the visual symmetry of a lot of the shots is so Kubrick. The the grand scope of it is very Kubrick. Like, the natural lighting and the sense of, like, all you can see what's lighting the entire set. The actual lights from the stage, you know, all of those huge hot lights. I always thought of Kubrick watching this sequence, but like watching this whole movie, Brian, I'm always impressed with the visual look. I kind of was like a a nerd about cinematography and all that kind of stuff in school and still am. But like there's a tremendous amount of sort of documentary style capturing of the footage. Like it doesn't look like a documentary at all, this movie, but the camera moves around just capturing stuff happening a lot. But then it, actually has these incredible moments of these beautiful shots that that are you know very precise and extremely planned and it reminds me because of how much it's shot on water and of the same sort of way it reminds me a lot of jaws because you wouldn't think that jaws necessarily has a lot of like great shots it's got that one you know dolly zoom of Roy Schreider when he's like on the beach and like that's a very famous shot they always show but there's a lot of other really great shots at jaws too and it that's the other film that I think of watching this movie in general. But this particular sequence always reminded me of Kubrick. Yeah, that's a good call. It does feel very Kubricky, you know, 2001-ish at times. As they travel upriver, there's a space quality to me that I've always... And I don't mean like literal space. I mean like outer space. Yeah, yeah. They could be traveling on a starship, and these could be different planets that they land at, right? Oh, I like and that. They're not vastly different because it's still in Vietnam, still that, but like... You'll see nothing on the boat in the night, and then you'll see a light in the background, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the sound, will, the sound's great in this movie. Yeah. But but the sound will start capturing you, and it's almost like, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that over there? And then, boom. They're in such a different environment. I, I love that. When it ends up being in, the, in that, the press box, and like the, the men from the boat are excited, everyone's excited there, but how it sort of descends into chaos towards the end because the guys I guess you know sort of ravenous and can't take it anymore like it's not the chaos we're gonna see later but I feel like the bunnies and their manager are prepared for it because they get back in that chopper and they go no I mean it's so funny how short this turns out to be and how it's just such a land dance and get the fuck out of there kind of thing like a grab and go but like this is like the worst thing to do. Like, where's the comedian? Where's the rock group? Like, they parade these three girls out in front of, like, hundreds of guys, horny as hell, right? Like, and they're out there. These girls are out there, like, simulating sex in front of them, shooting cap guns, going, like, hey, guys, how you doing? And they're, like, screaming their fucking heads off, like, take it, take it off, like you know, calling them all these nasty names and everything like that. And then it turns into like a riot. 
they just pour over like World War Z, right? It looks like World War Z where they're like crawling and clamoring all on top of each other trying to get there and like hanging from the chopper. It's like, holy shit. It turned into like a battle to get the hell out of there. <laughs> I have to watch the theatrical version again because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the next scene we're really going to talk about, uh, which is the mirror to this scene, I don't think it's in the theatrical it's not. Part, right? It is not. It was another big scene that... Uh, I, I recall if it's if it's in it's much much shorter, but I don't think it is in there if I memory serves. But we'll find out. So we're talking about um, you know they obviously leave in the next morning. Throughout here, we're not going to go scene by scene. Well, we are in a sense, but we're not going like all right. And then Willard discovers this. No, yeah, first, yeah, right? yeah. Because in between everything is Willard's little mystery. Uh, we talked a lot of, last time about film noir and stuff like that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The noir elements. Uh, there's one thing I want to mention now, though, because you strike the you struck a nerve with me when you said like outer space and like you're getting sort of maybe like a sci-fi feel. I am too because from this point on, they're gonna switch the score to like this synthy, fucking Blade Runner type Vangelis music. You know that yeah. is like. <laughs> it's like crazy synth music like it sounds like the opening to every Kraftwerk song right like <laughs> it's about to kick <laughs> I in love Kraftwerk. or love something Kraftwerk. but it's so cool and it just adds a whole other dimension to it where it's like wait a minute like is this another planet like is this sort of like strange worlds and and like mysteries beyond the moon kind of stuff I mean it certainly feels that way right yeah because when we when we get to our next planet if you will it's that uh rainy camp that's what I call it in my notes right it's like a disheveled it's on oh, their map, yeah. But they pass by, and they're like, "Hey, you know, you're, you're going upriver." Like we we get that a lot, right? Right, right. Like, Everyone's ne- going ne- down, and it's yeah. torrential downpour, like monsoon it's season. Disgusting, like that. Honestly, there's a lot of bad places in this movie. That might be the place I'd want to be the least. It's just like uninteresting. No one knows why they're there. Nobody wants to be there. It's disheveled. So yeah, this this. this begins like it's probably been here the whole time uh but Coppola never really references it in any of the interviews behind the scenes stuff but it's in mis- it's unmistakable from this point of the movie on and starting here where they're at this sort of waypoint it's storming nobody really has any direction or knows what's going on it feels like they're entering uh like another zone if you will i'm starting to get a lot of parallels to like Dante's Inferno and things like that, where like the further they go up river, the deeper they're going into like the levels of hell and the rings of hell. In a couple of scenes, when we get to the bridge, you're literally going to get like that imagery of the guys in the water, you know, as they're in the boat and they're all clamoring to get up into the boat. Like, I feel like that is uh, in, in the divine comedy and stuff. So like, I was looking for it at this point on where it's like, this is just a no man's land, a purgatory, if you will, at this point. Mike, absolutely. I, I have a whole essay, I don't want to say essay prompt, but I have a whole, I have a whole thing about that later. Um, cool. The further up the river, the less in touch with reality we are. I always forget what this scene is about here at the rainy encampment or whatever. Yeah. Because first they're like they're like, oh never mind, never mind. And then you see the manager from from the, the of the Playboy Bunny. Uh-huh. And he's like, hey, hey, come over here. Because he sees like that Willard is like the one sane person there. 
the helicopter has crashed and essentially i'm not agreeing with this but willard agrees to trade some fuel that they just acquired for a little R&R with the bunnies, yeah. as he says. Yeah. What do you think of this whole sequence? Yeah, like, I understand why they might have cut this out, but this, I think, is another reason why they should have flown in, like, a rock band instead of a bunch of these poor women, these Playboy bunnies who are not equipped to go to war. Like, you know, like they, threw them in, they flew them into the middle of this huge, dangerous place upriver. But, yeah, the, the gist is that they've run out of fuel and they're bartering now so that they could actually get the hell out of there. And, yeah, um, that they had to resort to prostitution. It's horrible. <laughs> um, but I guess there you go. Like, that just illustrates the reality of what's going on here. You know, it's like uh, money. There is no money. Like, what else are you going to do? This, it's all about survival, right? What are the levels that you're willing to justify acting in order to survive, right? And, yeah, they had no choice, kind of. Yeah, they just need to get out of there. They need to survive. A a couple things that I wrote down that I love about this scene, I love that the chief sort sort of is looking down on Willard for making this trade. And (laughs) Willard is like, hey, they're for everybody. You too. And he goes, you got any mamas in there? And Willard's like, what? (laughs) never mind you know so he sort of agrees like that the guys do need a little bit of r&r but they could have i'm not saying they should have but they could have played this like an american pie scene if you will like oh these hot bunnies and they just want to have sex with these guys see yeah Mm -hmm. they really humanize these girls and it makes the scene so much more depressing and like effed up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could also have gone the other way and just taken what they wanted and not given them anything, you know? Like, those are the harsher realities of what was going on over there. But, like, I think the nice thing about this sequence is just that, is that when the guys get into the choppers and start talking to these girls, it's not just about the sex. It's about companionship and someone to talk to. And, like, you know, especially uh, Chef being like, you know, I have all your stuff. Like, put on this wig yeah. and, and, and pretend, pretend you're Miss May instead. And she's like, I'm Miss August or whatever. And he's like, nah, nah, nah. Like, so it's like kind of living out the fantasy, that boyhood fantasy. And a lot of – they all kind of regress the guys a lot when they see these women and they have this opportunity, you know. And then the whole thing, you know, with Clean being a virgin after and all that really is coming in. Big play. deal. Big Huge deal. deal. So, because it – it's Lance with one of the girls who, like, she's super sad, and she's disassociated from the moment, and she's talking about the trauma, essentially, of, you know, she thought this was a title and stuff, and essentially, you know, she's had to do things that she regrets, and Lance is kind of, like, brain dead and ignoring it, which is, it shows exactly what you're saying. These men are regressing to their animalistic selves, but these women, like, they're just... They're trying, and that's sad. But uh, and the girl with Chef, who was talking about how she's—is that the one who said she was the bird girl at Bush Gardens? Yeah, I think that was the bird girl. I'm pretty sure that the bird girl was with Chef. Yeah, I love that because she was like, 
she was just excited about what she used to be and, and showing someone like the things she was into. And chef is like, yeah, I love birds. Like she's <laughs> essentially like, like playing along with it. And like that, I would say that's a more pleasant experience. The moment Lance was su- super sad, right? She didn't yeah. want to be there. She didn't want to be doing those things. And then is the third playmate dead? No, no, I don't think she's that's dead. Just... I think that they're just all on a lot of heavy drugs. Right. So, no, well, well, they hit a casket at one point and a body. Oh, up. maybe you're right. I don't know. I didn't pick up on that, that it might be her. So I wasn't sure, because it, the helicopter clearly crashed and they, like, they need to get out of there. But I wasn't sure if she was dead or if that third playmate was with Willard. Because Willard right. seems like he wants some and he goes off somewhere. Totally. So maybe he, w- he was with the third one and we just didn't see it. I was like, but where's the third one? Like, I was wondering the entire time. <laughs> Where she was. But this scene is, like, depressing. It's really sad. They get the fuel, so I guess it's not sad. And they could, like, leave that hell. Yep. But Francis is so good, though, at showing the humanity of everybody here. And how it's just all falling apart and degrading. And But you're you're right. I I do want to mention that Mr. Clean, Lawrence Fishman's character... Him being a virgin, he's banging on the door like, my turn next, my turn next. And then they, they tease him about it. Uh, you know, we'll get to it a little bit later, but he is also innocent on, on this boat, right? Yeah, pretty much. There's another big sequence we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, after they've left, we get this whole sequence on the river where mm-hmm. the captain, chief, you know, the skipper of the boat, he sees another boat. And you could tell at this point, there's been tension building mm-hmm. between Willard and the chief. And the chief decides to go full Navy and like, oh, no, it's our protocol. We need to search this boat. Yep. Not really knowing what's going to happen. Um, you know, cleans the gunner. Pulling rank. Pulling rank. You know, my boat. My boat. Exactly. So when they get to this boat, it looks just like an innocent boat of people trading things. Yeah, they junk have, boat. Yep. They might be hiding things here or there. We don't know. And he's forced, essentially the chief forces Chef to search it. And Chef is so scared and so reluctant to do it. He's like, no, no, I think it looks good. We don't have to do it. Yeah, yeah. I love that. (laughs) More into that character. But when he gets on the boat, I don't know what snaps in clean, but he just starts shooting at this boat. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's super tense. Like, you know, I think because of the way that Chief kind of, assumes command in a way where he seems at you're right he seems kind of aggravated at willard is like outranks him but he's also like hey man like it's still my boat we're not where you need to be where you don't need me right so like as long as you still need me we're gonna do things my way and they i'm sure it's protocol but they're so far up river like just go buy this one you know just let this one go there's no need to stop and search and frisk this thing but i think what it is is that it's a combination of chef going like look man there's nothing here look and he's like flipping things up and he's like there's nothing there there's nothing there and then the lady on the boat like lunging for him right because he's about to find the puppy that they think that maybe she's got a grenade or maybe she's got a knife or something i think that's why clean starts shooting yeah and also he almost hits chef like he almost hits his own it's almost friendly fire it's madness and complete overkill here you're right this is where they do discover the puppy that lance bonds with but it's it's a bloodbath here like yeah yeah it's a massacre it's funny because i always watched this movie and thought the chief was one of these 
characters who is like cerebral and always in command of the situation but this scene shows you that nobody can be in command yeah in vietnam that is a good point man because i think this scene comes much earlier in the theatrical cut if i'm not mistaken and it, it establishes the mood way earlier that like anything could happen at the hair of a trigger right like anything could happen at the split second of like whatever you could do that and then it's almost like foreshadowing to show like here's a dude who's like in command of this boat he's got these guys in line and like you know they listen to him and even he snaps so like it like foreshadows that like willard might snap too like you know like down the line like sure he seems all calm cool and collective too now but like what's gonna happen when he gets face to face with kurtz like is he you know is he gonna go too far or is he gonna do what he needs to do and be able to get the hell out of there and willard ends up one-upping essentially the chief <laughs> yeah yeah because there there is that woman who does survive and the chief's like no protocol we should take her more to, uh, yeah south vietnamese army and he's essentially like nope and he just shoots her like you know we can't have anyone know about the mission essentially but it really is a power trip thing by by willard in a sense and then it really establishes like yes chief is in command of the boat but at this point as they descend further into madness, it's Willard who has the final say on everything. Pretty much. Yeah, that is the exclamation point, right? Where it's like, so at that point, like, you've gone so far out of your way. You're going you're gonna to divert from the mission now to save this, you know, person who's going to die any second. Like, just boom, just, you know, problem solved. And it's just so direct. And it's so just like, you know, what were you thinking, man? Like, this, it's all your fault. And like, look what you made me do. You made me kill this innocent person kind of thing. It's so crazy. So crazy, Mike. And this next sequence, though, I, I've always just wanted to talk about in long form. I think it's like one of the more iconic sequences in every cut of the film. And that's, of course, the the Dulong Bridge. Oh, yeah. Which has been alluded to the entire time. Like, oh, you're going north of there? Like, everyone knows it. And I, I hate to do this. I hate to be, like, into these space analogies today. But I'm just reading my notes, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm talking about space again. This reminded me of, not reminded me, I've never experienced this, but you you know like black holes, how they uh-huh. say like when you get, get to the edge of them, they start to bend everything, space, yep. time, yep. logic, the universe as we know it, while you're entering a black hole does not exist. This is the border between reality and madness. Yeah, this is, Once yeah. you pass this bridge, we're going to go into a surreal environment. And and this is what it looks like at the edge of a black hole. To me. Yeah, this is the event horizon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a great. That's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and this is also like the gates of hell. Like officially, you know, uh, there's so much of that imagery coming out in this particular sequence with like the guys in the water and like them clamoring to get on the boat and saying like, "Oh, oh. forgive us all, oh, forgive me," and like you know all this stuff. The river sticks. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mythology. And, but also, again, with like the space stuff, you know, it's like pitch black, and and you see these lights. You know, they look like stars in the sky, and like you're just sailing in nothingness, and it's like almost magical to a degree. But then the music kicks in, and it's like this warp, twisted, merry-go-round circus music. You know, and it's just demented, and it's just like no, like this is where, like the guy says. The asshole of the world. You know, it's just like the <laughs> worst possible place you can imagine. 
It's also magnified by the fact that Lance is like painting his face because he's mm-hmm. he's dropped some acid. Yeah. And for him, it's it's even more that way. But Lance is succumbing to the environment around him. And when they get to the bridge or, or close to it, there's a guy like you, Willard. Right? They drop off some mail and some paper, so they kind of have to stop. And he's like, "Let me talk to the CEO." And Lance is the one who volunteers to go with him, right? Tripping on acid with a puppy. Like, Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. That whole scene where they're like, "What are we doing?" He's like, "We'll take the boat to the other side and meet us, and we'll meet you on the other side." And they go through the trench trying to find like whoever's in charge, and like, and nobody knows. No one's in, in charge here. It's like, so what are you guys doing? And it's like, well, we're we're defending the bridge. It's like every every day we build the bridge because every night they blow it up again and it's like what is this like sisyphus fucking mission that you're doing you're just pushing this rock up a hill and it's falling down every night and every morning you're pushing it back up the hill it's an analogy for the war as a whole yeah yeah well there's that also that that phrase building bridges between nations you know and here they are trying to build a bridge and the nation they're building it for is destroying it for them like every day <laughs> build a bridge destroy it build a bridge destroy it and just chaos and the people the men don't even know who's in charge they're i always thought they're probably firing at themselves at certain points right mm, that's interesting there's this one brief and beautiful moment right where they're in the trench and they're just the guys who are not fighting with those christmas lights oh yeah 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 it's very brief and you're just like these guys are just so done. Well, the, even the guy, even the guy who delivers the message to them when they get there, he's like, "Finally, I could go home. I can get the hell out of here if I could find a way out of here." But everyone is just like, "Done, dude." He's like, "I'm fucking done, man. I've been waiting for you for three days, and before that, I was, I was already done. But like, I am done, man." <laughs> I love thinking about that guy. Believe it or not, I love. Yeah, did he ever make it? <laughs> There's a whole another movie about him, right? Like, his mission is just to give this mysterious message to this mysterious person. He's also special forces if you look at his, uh, yeah. like, badges and stuff. And, like, you know, your mission, you must deliver this to this captain. You must get there in some amount of days. Don't ask what's in it. Just be there. And he had to go upriver, too, at some point. He had to travel there and, and wait there three days and survive three days there just to do yeah. this. And now go back home. Oh, my God. I, I think, though... To, to me, the iconic moment of the scene is when oh yeah, um, he interacts with those two soldiers. I think one is called Roach. Yep, one I, is I called like Roach. Yeah, and they're just they are so done too. But but like this Roach character is like supernatural, right? Because they're getting shot at, and you can hear the Vietnam guys like yelling at them and shooting at them and everything. And everyone else is trying to shoot at them too. But then they go up to Roach. And Roach has, like, a mortar in his arm, right? And he's just listening and listening. And he, like, pops it off and it nails the guy without even seeing it, you know? So, like, this guy is, like, super soldier in a lot of ways. And he's the one who everyone kind of seems to be looking up to at this moment. And um, I think Willard also, like, uh, notices that this guy has like an aura to him or something is up and like he's been changed in ways that he hasn't seen before by the war. And because this character is so unique, right? Like he's almost mute. He's so sort of calm and out of it, but yet like he's super precise and, you know, he's a master killer with that mortar of his. So it was just a really weird moment. It's weird because 
he doesn't kill for patriotism or to win the battle. You can tell that he's done this a lot and he's doing that so he can sleep and survive to the next day, right? He's an expert in survival. He's not an expert in being like a super soldier or G.I. Joe. (laughs) You get a sense that this is a loop for him. That every right. night he does yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he's just counting his days, and hopefully he'll escape there at some point. But he's he's in hell. That's, that's a good analogy. Is that like for these guys, it is Groundhog's Day because building this bridge every day, and like he's probably like got every uh, like angle and trajectory down because he shot that thing in every direction already. So it's just like, all right, where is he? All right, yeah, I know. I okay, boom. Like where is that? All right, yeah, all right, boom. <laughs> and dude, it gives me chills. When Willard asks him, like, do you know who's in charge here? And he just goes, yeah. And he doesn't answer. <laughs> you know, like, he answers, but he doesn't say who it is. Because, like, I, I always think about, like, what does that mean? Like, one, definitely part of it, he doesn't care. Two, he might be referring to himself, right? Three, he might be referring to... To Willard, I thought, at some point. Yeah. Like, some, some screenings, I thought he's, like, you in charge. Yeah, you're in charge, and I don't give a fuck, almost, you know? Yeah, like, you're, the, you're outrank everybody, that's for sure. <laughs> what a sequence. It's also arguably one of the most artistic sequences of the film. You mentioned the mm-hmm. soundscape here. The bullets. The music. Yeah. Yeah. The, the carnival stuff. Like, I, I could live in this scene forever. It's around six minutes long in, like, most of the cuts. And it's just a school in in filming chaos. Like, I can't imagine that this was easy to shoot like this. Everything going off in every single direction. Yeah, that's why it feels like it reminds me of what it must have been like to shoot Jaws. Like, on the water the whole time. Just, like, all of this uh, choreography going on with boats and people and lots of people this is no different like when we're sailing away from the bridge we see it exploding like we literally see the end of it right like this is what they're talking about all the time like we're witnessing you know (laughs) the futility of of the fruits of their labor like we're seeing it all burn down as they drive away and stuff and so like it's such a great punctuation mark to it it's like you know that they get to witness it too once at least and we know we have entered just a surreal world. This scene is super surreal. It's super weird. But we know everything past this point is just sort of going to hmm. defy you know, the laws of humane society. And for whatever reason, if you've never seen Apocalypse Now or, or the Redux version, and you don't know what we're talking about, like it's not shot in a way where it literally... Like things are surreal. It's just it does feel grounded, like you're still in Vietnam, right? Like we're not like yeah, yeah. But and that's the beauty of it, right? Like you are, but you aren't. Yeah, it's not like a Dolly painting surreal. I don't, I don't. No, no. It's not like that, right? But it's not like that. But it's just situations, and it's just the juxtaposition of of things. You know, like the idea of Playboy bunnies in the middle of the jungle. Like what? Like it's just so bizarre. Or like coming upon that seeing like coming up river and seeing like a giant stage in the middle of nowhere or like the idea of Kilgore you know of like oh he should be like in charge of these troops but instead he's concerned with surfing and then the guy's surfing in the middle of war it's just such a weird juxtaposition of images that you know makes it feel like surreal and unnatural it's surreal and unnatural in a way that feels like it could have existed in Vietnam 
Yeah. I don't know why I'm thinking of this movie, but um, it's something that I think I even talked about on Cage Club, your podcast. Remember Mandy, right? Uh, that Cage movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a surreal canvas. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. Like, you watch this and you're like, yeah, there could have been days like this in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is the, like, the real, when you talk about, like, surreal stuff, like, sure, there, again, there's, like, the the weird, like, oh, like, that's not what a horse should look like, or what a, like, horse with eight legs, you know? <laughs> Why is that clock melting? Yeah, the melting clocks and the laughing sun or whatever. Like, I'm not talking about tripping balls like that or anything, but, like, yeah, the way that it can occur in real life, like, just the absurdity of life and the way that things clash in places that you just never assume that they would show up together, and there they are, you know? Like, a, like, I don't know, like a television growing from a tree. It's not that kind of thing. No, no, no. You know? No, but again, it's still grounded in reality. Yes. But you'll get like, okay, here's an element that, you know, will probably end with this. Mm-hmm. Lance and the puppy, right? Lance goes with him into the, uh, like, the bridge area, into the chaos. And he's got a puppy, an innocent, cute little puppy stuffed in his jacket. And... That's real. That's reality. It's not a melting puppy. You know what I mean? But it's surreal to see such this cute, innocent puppy in this kind of environment. Exactly. And I think we get our true baptism that we've crossed over to an area, to the beyond that they've even teased that most people don't come back from. In this next sequence, as they're going upriver, and they sort of just get shot at, right? Well, it's it's a t- it's like they're going through the mail. I mean, they they're like tempting fate at this point because of where they are and all that kind of stuff. So like they're the card has been punched. Like their clock is done, but they just they're on borrowed time almost, I feel. And Lance starts playing with the smoke as they're reading mail out loud, and I think it's funny how Chef is like reading the note from his girlfriend and he's like, and he's like, "Hey man, she can't picture me in Vietnam either." As if, like, no one can picture of it. It's like, she's like, she pictures me on the couch with a beer, watching this, watching TV, man. Um, and uh, Clean is listening, like, his mom sent him the tape. But then, uh. um, but then, like, you know, Lance starts playing with the smoke and it, like, draws, I, that has to have drawn the attention of some. I mean, obviously, you're going to see the boat, but the smoke is going to be even more to be like where's that smoke coming from and then yeah it's as if like the jungle just comes alive again and just starts shooting at him like from all angles yeah i for- did forget to mention the mail call aspect of it um which is again why they've been stopped at the bridge but you're so right like it's just a random shootout the jungle is swallowing them alive and you know let's put on our film analysis caps here this is very clearly the end of Innocence here because yep. Clean, Lawrence Fishburne's character, is shot dead. It's unceremonious. You know, he doesn't go out as a hero, essentially. It's tough. It's tough on the chief, mostly. It's like the chief lost a son. Yeah. And they ha- have that clip of the mom talking like, we can't wait till you're home. You know, Now, that's surreal. That's a good a example car. right there where she, you see him lying dead, having just gotten shot, and her going, now, make sure you don't get shot. Or, you know, like the irony of it and all that kind of playing together, you know, damn, it's powerful. 
It's so powerful. It's so intense. You know, you start to feel for this kid. And they've been, again, setting this up. That's why I cannot picture this movie without the Playboy Bunny scene and learning that he's a virgin. Mm -hmm. Because they're just teeing it up for him to just die and get pulled away from us. And what's crazy, maybe it's obvious to some, but I freaking love it. The puppy goes missing in this part, right? We don't know if the puppy got killed or swam away or... We just don't know, and that's like, is there a more obvious symbol of innocence than a puppy? Right, yeah, exactly. I wish it was more played out. Actually, I'm glad it's not more played like this, but what if there never was a puppy and Lance just imagined (laughs) it the whole time? But no, like other people touched it and grabbed it and stuff. But like, yeah, that that is definitely um, well, well done, point well proven in this sequence, for sure. And the chief just crying. He was so young. (laughs) He was so young. And, you know, he was he was probably that kid at one point. Right. Oh, yeah. Like joined the Navy, rose through the ranks. Well, he might have a son who's 16 years old is what I was thinking, you know, and it's like, well, this is my, you know, this could have been him. It's his boat ultimately as well. Right. He was supposed to keep everyone safe. Yeah. And you, you, you can't help that. He's what's running through his mind must be why that. F are we up here, right? Yeah. Why like, is Will, Willard taking us up here? He's reached the point of what's the point, right? Like, I think he's been dancing on that fence for a while, um, especially when he's getting fed up that Willard won't tell him how far they need to go or any of that. And then finally, when he's like, we're going past the bridge, and he's like, past the bridge? He's like, people don't do that. You know, <laughs> like, what are we thinking? And he's like, top secret. There, I nailed my Martin Sheen impression, finally. <laughs> Captain Willard on the boat, trying to, hey, here I am. <laughs> and let's be honest too, Mike. Even though they've had such a crazy experience at this point, nobody of their core has really died. You could argue that it's all right. been fun and games until now. It, it kind of has, right? Like, um, especially with with, uh, with Chef, like almost got eaten by a lion, almost got his balls blown off, right? And... and um, What's the other guy been doing? Like, maybe he's been surfing. Maybe he's been water skiing, you know, playing with a puppy, tripping out all day. Yeah, he's surfing and tripping on drugs and and hanging out with a puppy. (laughs) And they're all sitting out, hanging out, smoking weed. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. So next time, I think this is a good place to end. Yeah. End it in innocence ourselves. I I cannot wait for the next episode. Yes, we're going to talk Kurtz. Yes, we're going to talk this particular ending of Redox, which is tweaked from the ending of the theatrical cut, but we will also get into that infamous French colonial scene. Oh yeah. And I cannot wait, Mike. Dun, it, dun, dun. I'm going to, I'm going to hum some um, Les Mis in the background while we talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's very Les Mis. Anything else you want to add from this like middle sequence here? Um, so I think like after the, after we leave Kilgore and this chunk that we've watched, like up until the bridge, I think we really get a good sense of how things are kind of like falling apart and devolving and corroding and all that, the further we get up river. And yeah, there's just lots of good examples of like good intentions gone horribly wrong, you know, like the USO show, like morale for the troops, good idea, but like goes horribly wrong, like stopping to check the boat, like good idea, you know, because we're at war and stuff, but like, we don't have time for this. And it goes horribly wrong. Um, Stopping at the bridge, like we don't accomplish anything. We could have just gotten the mail and sailed right through having one of our own die. Like everything is just starting to go horribly wrong. 
you know, more and more. And the rest of the movie is kind of all set up, you know, like we're going to visit a bunch of ghosts with the French, right? Like they're already dead. They've been dead for generations. Like they're literally going to be ghosts in the afterlife. And then we're going to meet Satan. Like we're going to go to the kingdom of hell and he's going to be sitting on this throne of heads. You know, it's like heads sticking out of the ground and like crazy distorted imagery and things like that, like slaughtering a cow. Like, could you get kind of more religious thematically when we get there? Yeah, so I'm excited for where we're going, even though uh, the characters aren't. And it's just watching it and talking about it on a show like this is really like, I never thought I could appreciate the movie more, but like it's bumping up my level of appreciation for this because it's like I'm having a lot more fun talking about it, not just watching it, but having you to talk about it is, uh, is really been a lot of fun. Because I feel like, honestly, this is often considered one of the greatest films of all time, certainly one of Francis's greatest films of all time, but it does not get the love of The Godfather or even The Godfather 2. It doesn't have the lore and just the culture around it. That There's been so much talk on The Godfather, and we love doing it, obviously. But this is something, for me at least, that I have not really talked about with people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I, I yeah, I'm with you. I lo- I'm loving... Talking about Apocalypse Now, I'm glad there's so many cuts because we're going to be able to talk about this film, you know, if we want, once a year for a while. We <laughs> totally. Well, I'm in. You know that. I already I already signed the deal with the devil. Um, I'm on a mission, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> we'll be going upriver for a very long time, Mike. Speaking <laughs> of The Godfather, we have to end the episode. Yep. Leave the guns and take the cannolis. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my own.